Good morning. We've been journeying through the book First Thessalonians. Uh, why First Thessalonians? It's, it gives us a chance. It gives us a first century look into what does it take to grow the gospel. These are foundational things, essentials for growth. What does it take to plant and to grow the gospel in the life of another? There's an inside look because Paul plants a church in Thessalonica, this town along the way, and uh, he can't stay there very long, but he writes back pretty soon afterwards and gives us an enduring record of what he did while he was among them and what he urges them to continue in doing. And that gives us that first century look. And what's interesting about that first century look into planting and growing the gospel in the lives of others is it looks a lot like our day, in some ways more like our day than we would realize. The, the um, song, one of the songs that we sang uh, just a little earlier, though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. And I, and I paused at that word should. I said now to myself, and not all of you have conversations with yourself in the midst of your singing, but I do. I said to myself, that should. Does that mean that, that, it, that it, they might threaten to undo us? Or does it mean with such an array of opposition against us, it should. It, it would most logically, we ought to expect it to undo us. If it, not, if it were not for our God and the, and the fact that his truth will triumph through us. That if we did not have God's truth, then the, we, we should expect, we ought to expect that the enemy, as powerful as he is, would undo us. And yet, he will not, cannot, will speak to that. Because God's truth will triumph through us. I want to talk today about truth. I want to actually raise the question for you. And I'm not certainly the first to raise this question. You've heard this question before. What is truth? You've not only heard it when you've read about the crucifixion of Jesus where Pontius Pilate famously echoes those words, what is truth? It was a cynical question in his day. It's a cynical question in our day. Is there really any truth? An African-American commentator, uh, his name's Thomas Sowell, has said that the true crisis in education today is not that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is, and he has confused thinking with feeling. Now, I'd like to paraphrase Sowell's quote just a little bit and turn it in what I think is an even bigger issue. The problem in the way of knowing God's truth is not that we or the people around us don't know the right truth. The problem is not even that we have embraced a lie as truth. The problem is that we no longer know what truth is and we confuse truth with opinion. Now, this is not new to us. We're not the first generation or the second generation or even the third to confuse truth with opinion or wonder if there's any truth at all to be known. That's actually been the flow of human history. It's interesting to me what it is that Paul gets really excited about in Thessalonica. 
I've actually been to the city of Thessalonica. And when I tell people about visiting the, the, the city of Thessalonica, you know what I get excited about? One of the things I will always tell them is, man, there is a bakery in every block. It is fantastic. And they are wonderful, delightful little bakeries full of things you must try. But that's not what Paul got excited about about Thessalonica. I don't know if there were bakeries or not. He doesn't really tell us that. What Paul gets excited about in Thessalonica is their response to the truth. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. You'll find us on page 986 still. It's because all of chapter 2 is on page 986 in that church Bible. So next week, we're going to get to a new page in that Bible. But for now, we're still in chapter 2. We are still on page 986. Begin reading to verse 13. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers or in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators and followers of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that were in Judea. For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and, and displeased God and opposed all mankind or humanity by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, he says again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Why? Because you received the word of God which you heard from us and you accepted it not as the word of men, the opinions of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. Father, we would ask most simply this morning, that your word would be at work in we who believe. Do your work even this morning. Do your work in us by your word in this next week, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I, as, as I look at this, I think the main, the main thrust is that opening verse, verse 13, stepping into God's truth. They embraced what they heard as what it really was, God's truth. I want to unpack that a bit. I want to focus on what is, it, what is it about God's word as truth? What challenges do we face to truth in our environment today that are not unlike what they experienced? Because you can expect trouble. When you proclaim the truth, when you want to share God's truth with somebody, expect trouble, expect opposition, and don't take it personally, but we are pressing toward God's, God's goal. We, we follow God's truth to God's end. Where is God going? What is this all about? What is it for? So I want to pause on, I want to put a pin in the stepping into God's truth because I want to spend a little more time on that. And I first want to, want to warn you. 
Not unlike Martin Luther did in that song we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that there is opposition against us. And the opposition is spiritual, it's not personal. So let's, let's start there, that God's truth, as God's truth, in fact will grow even in harsh climates, even in difficult conditions, even in opposition to it. In a time of war, there's suffering and sacrifice. We are in a battle, it says, and there's a cost to pay. There's a burden to be borne. Anytime, anytime we are stretching into God's future, and this chapter ends with a view of God's future. Anytime we are stretching into God's future, there will be a cost. There will be a sacrifice. So don't be intimidated by the devils that would seek to undo you. We don't need to... Don't don't be surprised at the opposition, but don't take it personally. God's truth, in fact, is normally opposed. It's normally opposed as being truth at all. It's happened since Genesis 3. God said clearly this. God declares an absolute, and the lie is believed. You can determine what is good and what is evil. It's up to you. It's up for grabs. It's opened It's not firmly defined. In the book of Judges, we see that same continuation in in seeking out to make our own definition of God's truth. There was no king over Israel. There was no absolute uh, royal decree. Each one does what is right in his own eyes. What is, happening? what is the story of the book of Judges? Judges is one of those books we don't want to read because we think that it tells us, it describes a situation where God is not in, not God in control and God's people are doing terrible things and what kind of God is it that would allow this? The book of Judges is simply this. It's the living out of the reality of Genesis 3, not merely with a couple in a garden, but with a nation of people in a land. Judges 3 is then then a slightly larger microcosm of what is actually true around the world. In rejection of God's truth, and we choose our own, God's truth is is firmly opposed. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? John chapter 8, Jesus himself says, because I tell you the truth, that's why you don't believe me. God's truth has always been opposed. It's interesting here that the point at which God's truth is opposed, when God's God's truth came to Thessalonica, carried along by Paul and Silas and Timothy, what was it that the people in the synagogue, you could compare it in your own thinking maybe to people in church today, what was it that the people who gathered first to hear, what was it that they liked about it the least? What was it that stirred them against it? What was it that riled them? When he began to speak of the Gentiles. When he began to speak, it wasn't just that he had some new perspectives on the Old Testament, that he was putting the picture of the Old Testament together as fulfilled, God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. That could make sense to them, but what they didn't like was rather than us being deserving and worthy of God's Messiah who's going to give us a better situation, Paul comes along and says, by God's grace, his salvation, his rescue, his deliverance, his love and his mercy is for everyone who would believe, even these non-Jewish Gentiles around you whom you look down on as far less moral as you. It's fascinating to me that, that 
What, God's, what God holds people most accountable for in this section, they displease God, they oppose all mankind, verse 15, how? Verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. That what God is most ticked about here is that they would prevent, oppose the gospel of Jesus being heard by others. That suggests something on the flip side for you and I, that the thing God is most excited about us doing is extending the gospel to people around us, the gospel of salvation in Jesus to people around us who don't have it, who haven't received it, in fact, who don't seem worthy of it. That are contrary to our tradition or our expectations that God would be that gracious and that merciful. That's what gets God most excited about extending the truth of his gospel to what you might think of as the least of these. Verse 17 in line of the same opposition. Expect opposition, but don't, don't take it personally. Paul says, we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, but not in, in heart. We, we endeavored, we wanted to come to you, we tried to come to you. What is Paul doing with all this? He's, why is he pouring out his heart? We wished we could have come, but we couldn't. Satan hindered us. This is a spiritual opposition, it's not personal. Why, why is he doing that? Could it be? In Thessalonica, one of the storylines being run, one of, the, one of the sinister smears in the synagogue is this. Yeah, Paul, yeah, he came and he left. He's moved on. He doesn't really care about you. Those things that he said about caring about you, he doesn't really look. Where is Paul? Well, they're the ones that run him off. And they're the ones that hinder him from returning. There's a, there's a bond placed against somebody's home, in fact, who hosted him before that the obstacles have been put in the way, and it's not merely of these men, but it's a spiritual opposition, but there's this lie going around suggesting Paul is abandoning you and doesn't really care. Could it be that thoughts like that echo around in our own hearts? One of the things that would discourage us, one of the things that would cause us to sideline, to set aside, to diminish God's truth's call on us is the fact of present circumstances seeming to suggest to us that either God doesn't really care about me in my situation, my circumstances because of these things, or some of God's people don't really care about me. As they should, because Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. By this will all know the truth if you have love one for another. But they're not really loving me in the midst of my circumstances. Paul is doing something here. He's, he's defending his absence because in love, like a loving mother, like a, like a faithful father, he would be there. And yet he's not. And that suggests, well, maybe he's not. Maybe Paul's not real. Maybe Paul's message is not real. Maybe this is generally real for the future, but it's not the controlling and compelling center of my life right now because my experience doesn't line up with it. See, because there's a really important point about experience and truth. In fact, it goes 
it goes back to our comprehension of what can be true or cannot be true. Now let me jump back to the first section, what I really want to spend time on, of stepping into God's truth. That this is not a word or a truth merely from men, which is subjective, which is opinion, which is a theory, but this is truth from God. It's truth from God that actually works in you who believe. Well, what is truth? That's the question. How do we know what truth is? On one level, both right out of this verse is a blurred distinction between subjective versus objective truth. Subjective truth. I could say, there's an example I got from somebody else. I could say that, that Tillamook peanut butter ice cream or peanut butter fudge, let's get chocolate and peanut butter together, nothing can go wrong. That Tillamook peanut butter fudge ice cream is the best ice cream ever. And you won't argue with me. You won't say that's a lie. You recognize on the face of it that that is a, a statement of opinion, really. It's subjective truth. It's, watch this postmodernism, it's true for me. But it might not be true for you. It might not be your truth because what? You're allergic to peanuts. You can't get close to peanut butter fudge. You don't care who makes it because they make it with peanuts, right? Okay, well, that's true for you, and that's true for me, and that's subjective truth, and that's fine. There is subjective truth, or even opinion, and there is objective truth. There is things that are true, and I should be able to tell if it's true or not. For instance, what if I tell you, because you, you're going to go backpacking with me, I tell you, don't worry about the water and the streams and the lakes. Coca-Cola is as effective at killing bacteria in any water source as iodine or bleach. Well... If you looked at what Coca-Cola can do to other things, you, you might be tempted to believe that. You know, that. That's some deadly stuff, yeah. So, but you laughed at me just then. You said, no, that's ridiculous. Coca-Cola is not good. at. In fact, Coca-Cola would probably cause bacteria to flourish in any water source if it's already there, right? Because there's sugar content there. But what... But that's an objective truth statement. Coca-Cola is as good as iodine or bleach and killing bacteria in water. What can you do with that? You could say, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. Or you could say, wait a minute, we can objectively test that. We can run some controlled experiments with water from various sources. This is the same water, and we're going to add some Coca-Cola. We're going to add some iodine. We're going to add some bleach. We're going to put it in the microscope. We're going to look for bacteria, Right? And you can do it over and over and over again. It's reproducible, it's repeatable, and you can come up with the outcomes and you can definitively say yes or no to that statement. It is true or it is not true because the statement is compared to an examined reality. Now we go all the way back to Aristotle. You were hoping to hear from Aristotle this morning, weren't you? Aristotle defines truth this way. Aristotle says that there is an absolute reality and there is our own perception. And he puts them together, he says, to say of what is that it is and what is not that it is not is true. He's comparing a statement of truth, a truth claim, with experienced reality. And that which, is, that which you state or claim that lines up with reality is true. That which you state or claim that doesn't line up with experience or observed reality is false. Now it gets a little muddy 
because we have different experiences. Somebody's experiencing Paul having cut and run. He describes he did not cut and run. He was forced out of town. He was chased out of town by those who hate the gospel, but that the gospel itself tells them, God's word itself tells them that God loves them. So their experience was muddied by what happened with Paul, and yet there's a reality further down. But our experience is important in how we perceive truth. How does it correspond with reality? How does what is said correspond, agree, or contradict what I've seen? Postmodernism is a, is, is a claim for relative truth. Or actually, it's a critique about what can we know about truth. We think of postmodernism as new, don't we? We think of that as something after the modernist era, that, that all of a sudden that, that our ability to truly know, you experienced postmodernism this morning, maybe some of you. Did you know that? You were getting dressed for church this morning and you pulled this one shirt or blouse out of the closet and you put it on and the lighting in the bedroom was one way. But then you step down into the kitchen where maybe there's a sunlight and some daylight was coming through and all of a sudden the color combination was like, what were you thinking? That'll never work. Did the color of the blouse change? No, your perception of the color of the blouse changed because of different light that the blouse is in. The blouse certainly has an absolute color, but we're not sure if we can know what the absolute color is because our perception of the color is dependent upon which light is shining upon it. Let me give you another example. You're hungry. Do you like apples? Are apples sweet or are apples sour? The same apple could be sweet or sour depending on this. If you ate a square of chocolate, before you ate that piece of apple, what happens? How does the apple taste? It's a little sour. If you, had a, if you sucked on a nice lemon wedge, you'd like to do that, don't you? You sucked on a nice lemon wedge and then you ate a slice of that apple. How does the apple taste? The apple tastes remarkably sweet. The same apple with the same flavor it was going to have anyway, but your perception of the flavor changes based on your own experience. And you say, because we all have various experiences and biases, the lemon on our tongue already is a bias against the apple. Actually, I guess it's the bias for the apple. The chocolate on our tongue already would be a bias against the apple. There's no way the apple's going to measure up to that. But because we're affected by this bias of lemon or, or chocolate, we can't truly know what the apple tastes like. That's what postmodernism is arguing. So you have your truth, and I have my truth, and we seem to be stuck, and there is no truth, and how would we ever get to verse 13, which is the goal? Verse 13 is that goal, which is that they would receive God's truth for what it really is, an absolute truth of God which works in you who believe. Well, how about this? How about working with your experience and comparing it to what God's truth claims? Does God's truth line up with your experience? 
For instance, this is you, you have your truth and my truth. Well, well God's truth works for me as my truth. And, and, and let's, let's examine how does it line up? Does, what, does, what does the Bible say about your experience, what you know about humanity? There's something special about humans. Humans are different than animals, and yet there's something horribly wrong with humans. Humans are awful and selfish and mean and cruel and harsh, and, and they use others to advance themselves. Look at the news. What do you know about humans? That's exactly what the Bible says about humans. So it's true compared to our experience. What does the Bible say about your own feelings of shame and guilt? If you press in a little bit, this is somebody you're close to. That, that those feelings of shame or guilt that you have, the Bible speaks to those. It not only tells you about them, it tells you that they are valid, and it tells you that there's something that can be done about them. It tells you that there's something that can be done about shame. The, all of us have questions about identity, and the Bible speaks to identity. Who are humans? Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What are we about? Part of the problems that have affected our ability to convey the gospel as God's truth in the midst of a postmodern age, which we think is new, but Pilate had the same mindset. They had the same mindset. Paul describes the tension there between this could be, be the truth of men. Paul comes to Athens and he's just another philosophy, another version, another perspective to line up against all the others on a shelf and say, don't they look nice? So our, 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 our phenomenon today about my truth and your truth and their truth is nothing new. Don't let it intimidate you. But... How does the problem, that's where I was going, the problem is that our tradition of what the Bible says collides with others' perceived experience of what they understand about humanity. For instance, dare I, I uh, tread into a, a, a difficult problem? I was born with this attraction to other men, let's say. And, but the Bible condemns homosexuality, so the Bible does not line up with my experience because God made me like this. Directly? Well, no, there was a biological process involved. But people were, are born. And I want to dare suggest to you today that, yes, some people are born with a propensity toward same-sex attraction. Okay, well, let's just, just, just allow that for a minute. Does the Bible say that wouldn't be? Does it? It does say that that is not normal or God's intention, and to act on such a desire is actually sin. It does say that, but does the Bible say that somebody would not be born with same-sex attraction? Does the Bible say that everybody will be born with four fingers on each hand and one thumb? Does it? Or does the Bible speak of people who have five fingers on each hand? You wonder where that five-fingered man came from, right, in the, in the movie? Yeah. The, does the Bible say that everybody will be born with, with perfect GNA, nothing wrong genetically? Or does the Bible say that every one of us is born with things wrong with us, spiritually, emotionally, physically? So where we run into problem with people around us today is when our tradition of 
how one is approved by God. Not unlike the synagogue. Not unlike the synagogue. Well, we're good Jewish folk who've been following Moses. Of course, Messiah comes for us. But what do you say about including these Gentiles? That's what angered them. And when we take a similar tradition that says people that measure up in these ways are the people that will be acceptable to God, we are excluding somebody who says, but I was born different or my experience is different. Because I can guarantee you that if it's a matter of human failing and brokenness, that is exactly what the gospel of Christ speaks to. Now how will they know that this answer to that, this truth claim about who they are and what, how God perceives them and what God has done for them and what God would give them, how could they know that this is actually not just your truth or my truth, but that this is God's truth, this is the word of God that could actually work in them, could actually change them? How do they know? Still in verse 13. We came to you. You received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is. The word of God which is at work in you who believe. I want to suggest to you today that that's how they'll know. It works for us. It makes a difference for us. It changes us. And it makes a rough old Pharisee like Paul loving like a nurturing mother and caring and gently challenging and encouraging like a faithful father. It takes murderous Paul and makes him like that. And the the change... You're yielding to that truth as not merely truth that's there that maybe fits in some ways, maybe doesn't, as optional truth, shall we say, but as compelling truth because this is God's truth, are yielding to that, are submitting to that, are even sacrificing for that, gives weight to that testimony to the people around us. How do I know that works? Can I see it in you? And I'm talking about you here. I'm not talking about me. That's the, that's the beauty of my thinking along these lines. Because you're the ones who are, who are around your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors. They are more likely to hear God's truth as truth from you than they will from me. Because remember, I'm just that paid preacher guy. I'm supposed to say this stuff. I, I, I read this book. I study this book. I try to put it together in compelling messages, and I, I give it out because that's what I'm supposed to do. But you're just you. You're just somebody who God's word is working in. And that's exactly what God's word is supposed to do. In fact, God tells us that's what his word is going to do. Paul leaves Ephesus. He can't stay there either. He can't stay there forever. He stays there a long time, but he can't stay there forever. He says, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which that word of God's grace is able to build you up, to change your life, to give you an inheritance in life 
among all those others who are also sanctified, who are also set apart as God's own. God's word is able to build you up. It is able to change you. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to pierce and discern between the, the uh, mind and the spirit. God's word is able to poke into the motives of your heart, the hidden things that are there, and reveal them to you, to change you. Francis Schaeffer said it this way, love is the greatest apologetic. By this will all men know if you have love for one another. They'll know you're a follower of me. They'll see the reality in you if you have love for one another. God's truth working where it is truly tried. That's what, that's what we're saying when, when we have an issue with church, church membership or church discipline. In church membership, we are saying we have seen God's truth. We have seen the gospel working in you. We are convinced along with you that you are truly a member of Christ's church, and so you are welcomed in membership in this church. Through church history, church membership was a confirmation of membership in Christ. We see what God has done in you. Whereas church discipline or the exclusion then from being counted among the members of a local church is a statement that says what we're seeing now, your persistent insistence on continuing in this pattern of sin suggests to us that God's word is not working in you. That you have not actually received that word as the very word from God. You have not been born again. God's word is not working in you. We don't see the reality of it. We don't know definitively if you have been saved or not, but we're not seeing that in, at this time. That's what that exclusion is. That's where it comes from. So that those who are called the members of a church are called that because they are recognized, affirmed to be members of God's church. It doesn't mean that a local church decides who's in Jesus and who's not, but we recognize or we ought to recognize. There's the thing, isn't it? We ought to recognize by the claim the purchase that God's word has in our lives. It changes us. It works in you who believe. It's been raining a lot lately, hasn't it? It's been raining a lot lately. But there's a good thing about rain. There is. Rain causes stuff to grow. There's a lot of other parts of the country, there's a lot of other parts of the world that do not look anything like the green, lush Northwest. I don't know why people run to California, or, 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 or Arizona especially. I understand there's sunshine there, but nothing else but rocks and tumbleweeds, Right? It is the rain that falls from heaven and waters the earth. And God says in Isaiah 55, that's what my word does. My word which I send forth, it does not return void. It accomplishes the purposes for which I send it. And what are those? We're going to sing it. Ancient words, ever true because it's God's truth. It's absolute truth. It can be relied upon. Changing me, changing you. That's what God's word does. I want to encourage you. For your witness to the people who you are around, and so you are 
telling them, whether, whether you're, you know it yet or not, you are saying something to them, I want to encourage you this week, for the value of that testimony, read through 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4 gets really specific. Chapter 5, the end of chapter 5 goes into a litany of very specific things that we ought to follow. Jump over to 1 Peter, as, Ryan, as Pastor Ryan pointed out several weeks ago, about how we live differently as God's different people in front of other people, in all kinds of different ways, at work, at home, in marriage. That's why we love the ministry marriage team in this community that we also are a part of and want to send people to be coaches and help a family out in the community in their marriage, because it's a great ministry, and we can live differently before and with others. The, um, where was I going with that? Follow through the word this week. Read the word this week asking, how should this change me? This is nice that this is true, that this is God's truth that he set before us here. If it is, what's its claim on me? What do I do with it? What should it do with me? I want to challenge you to read through, because we're in 1 Thessalonians, read through 1 Thessalonians and find there. Don't stop reading each day. And you can stop reading as soon as you find this. What is a way that this has a claim on me? What is a way that this word must work in my life? You've got that. Focus on that. Pray there go into the world in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your word is alive. Thank you that your word is living. It's powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Father, because that is true, Lord, we ask again. We ask with humility, but also, Father, we ask with intentionality, and we ask, Lord, with intending submission. Lord, speak to us from your word. As we read it, Lord, guard our wandering minds that we would focus long enough today, tomorrow, the day after that, that you would show us where this word of God, which will work in us, must work today, tomorrow, the next day. Father, show your word in our lives in ways that will help us to tell your word as absolute truth that does work to the people around us, that they might know it too. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.